and welcome to On Call for God. I'm Jose Rodriguez, your host. This week in the news, thousands march in the biggest anti-Israel protests in U.S. history. Russia withdraws from the nuclear test ban treaty. United States wants a two-state solution in the Middle East. Protesters try to scale the White House fence. Thousands chant death to America, death to Israel in Iran. These and other headlines on On Call for God. On Call for God begins right now. Thousands march in the biggest anti-Israel protests in U.S. history. At least tens of thousands of pro-Palestine protesters marched through Washington, D.C. in one of the biggest anti-Israel protests in United States history. At the rally, speakers focused on calls to end U.S. funding for Israel in the war, accusing President Joe Biden of backing a genocide of Palestinian people in the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's bombardment of Gaza began in response to the October 7 attack by Hamas. Dubbed Black Sabbath in Israel, Hamas killed some 1,400 people, including men, women, and children, and kidnapped, at the latest count, 240 others in the biggest recorded atrocity against Jews since the Holocaust. Yet those descending on Washington, D.C. demanded an end to the retaliatory bombings and ground offensive in Gaza that Israel says targets the Hamas military and infrastructure. As the sun set, protesters smeared the White House gates with red paint. Back at Freedom Plaza on Saturday afternoon, speakers cried out against what they called a genocide in Gaza. The Hamas-run health ministry claims 9,000 people were killed since Israel began its military operations on October 7th. But critics say those figures are difficult to verify, and it remains unclear how many Hamas fighters are among those killed. Israel maintains it tries to avoid killing innocent residents, but accuses Hamas of using civilians as human shields. Among the speakers at Saturday's rally was the rapper Macklemore, who told thousands of pro-Palestinian supporters he was not afraid to speak out against the war. Earlier, hundreds of thousands of protesters around the world staged demonstrations in the last week. Encouraged by Hamas and Hezbollah and Iranian cause for rage, protesters rallied in London, Istanbul, and elsewhere. Major cities throughout the United States have also seen protests, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Boston. In Saturday's rally, organizers claimed some 100,000 people participated, while most independent observers spoke about tens of thousands of people. Dozens of buses packed with protesters could reportedly not reach the venue due to security measures in the nation's capital. Co-organizer Brian Becker hoped the gathering would be the largest demonstration in support of the Palestinian people in the history of the United States. Meanwhile, Russia withdraws from nuclear test ban treaty. On Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin enacted a bill nullifying Russia's adherence to a nuclear test ban treaty. Russian state-controlled media covered Putin's approval of the legislation, legislation which had been approved by the Russian parliament the previous month following public statements from Putin indicating his intention to annul the nuclear bomb testing ban treaty. On October 5, Putin stated that he was not prepared to confirm whether Russia should resume nuclear testing despite calls from certain Russian security experts and legislators advocating for nuclear tests as a deterrent message to the Western nations. However, the United States has unequivocally voiced its disapproval of Russia's recent actions, emphasizing concerns about Moscow's decision to withdraw from the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. 
U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in a statement, Russia's action will only serve to set back confidence in the international arms control regime. Netanyahu and Hezbollah keep exchanging threats. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned Lebanon's Hezbollah group that Israel's enemy will suffer unimaginable costs after its leader said Lebanon had joined a coalition seeking the destruction of the Jewish nation. Don't wrong us, Netanyahu said, warning that joining a war against Israel would have devastating consequences. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, who spoke for the first time since Hamas fighters killed 1,400 Israelis on October 7th, claimed that Lebanon joined on October 8th in attacks against Israel. Meanwhile, U.S. wants a two-state solution when this is all over. United States, long Israel's closest ally, made clear Friday that it expects the Israel-Hamas war to lead to a two-state solution. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, on a visit to Israel, told Israeli leaders that the war could not only be about defeating Hamas. He suggested that the battle for Israel's existence following the Hamas killings of the 1,400 people is also about a brighter future with a state of Palestine and Israel being peaceful neighbors. This is not just about dealing with Hamas, he acknowledged, in terms of defeating it physically. It is about making sure that it can't repeat what it did on October 7th. However, the Israel-Hamas war is also about defeating an idea, a perverted idea, that we have to combat with a better idea, with a better vision for what that future can be, and demonstrating that we're committed to achieving it. He said the two-state vision could give people something to hope for, and added there is a broad and strong coalition throughout the region that supports it. He also urged Israel on Friday to introduce humanitarian pauses in the fighting as its army battled Hamas deep in Gaza. However, Israel had rejected ceasefire talks, saying it reacted to the worst atrocities against Jews since the Holocaust. It has pledged to destroy Hamas following the October 7 massacres in Israel and the kidnapping of more than 240 people. Well, it's interesting that Hamas, in their charter, says that their purpose in life is to kill all the Jews. And yet, the American government is still looking for a two-state solution. Here in the United States, there's a migrant caravan that's uh, coming up to the U.S. southern border. In fact, I believe uh, there's been some that have already come up into Arizona. But according to one of its organizers, the migrant caravan en route to the U.S. southern border now exceeds 7,000 individuals. Irenio Mujica, a U.S. citizen and organizer of the caravan, stated that the number of people in the caravan had increased by approximately 1,000 since Monday, reaching over 7,000 individuals. However, this number is, as many numbers of this type are, disputed by Mexican authorities who estimated the participation of around 3,500 people. The caravan which departed from southern Mexico on Monday consists of migrants from various South American nations, including Cuba, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, and Venezuela. The caravan arrives at a challenging time for the Biden administration with an impending election and mounting security reg scrutiny rather, regarding the substantial influx of undocumented immigrants into the United States, along with the administration's perceived lenient border policies. At the White House, they had visitors, protesters, trying to scale the fence. Hundreds of pro-Palestinian and Hamas protesters gathered outside the White House over the weekend, attempting to force the gates open. Footage from Washington, D.C. on Saturday revealed protesters wearing 
keffiyehs, uh, Palestinian scarves, and climbing on the gates in front of the home of the U.S. president, waving Palestinian flags and screaming things such as, You stand with genocide. The protest drew tens of thousands of people from across the United States to the country's capital, with many demanding the Biden government institute a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas under the threat of not voting for the Democrat Party in the 2024 presidential election. Others were seen holding signs reading, Biden betrayed us. Nihad Awad, the uh, national director of the Hamas-linked Council on American-Islamic Relations, said, Our message is, no ceasefire, no votes. No votes in Michigan, no votes in Arizona, no votes in Georgia, no votes in Nevada, no votes in Wisconsin, no votes in Pennsylvania. Protests were not merely limited to D.C., However, as mass pro-Palestine demonstrations were held across the United States and Europe on Saturday, a number of Muslim men were seen igniting flares in the German capital of Berlin and attacking police officers in London's Trafalgar Square later in the evening. In Iran, not to be left behind, thousands were chanting death to America and death to Israel. Thousands of Iranians gathered in Tehran on Saturday, chanting those phrases, just days after Iran's supreme leader made those slogans official policy. They gathered on the anniversary of the 1979 takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Iran's capital, while condemning Washington's support for Israel as it waged war against Hamas in Gaza. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says that over 10,000 people have been killed in the Strip during the war as Israel seeks to destroy their military and governance cap capacities. However, figures issued by Hamas, condemned as a terrorist organization by Israel and most of its allies, cannot be independently verified. Israel suggests that among the victims are Hamas terrorists and gunmen killed in Israel and in Gaza and the victims of Gaza terror groups uh, missile misfires. Saturday's rally, organized by the state, came as the latest Hamas war entered its fourth week. The war began after some 1,400 people in Israel were slaughtered and over 240 taken hostage. Israel said they were taken hostage by over 3,000 Hamas and other terrorists. Saturday's gathering came after Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei declared the Death to America slogan, Iran's policy, as Washington acts against Iran and supports Israel. Khamenei, who seeks Israel's destruction, told students in Tehran this week, the situation between America and Iran is this. When you chant Death to America, it's not just a slogan, it is a policy. He stressed that if it were not for America's support, if it were not for the support of U.S. weapons, the corrupt and artificial Zionist regime would have been destroyed in the first week, referring to Israel. It would have collapsed. The Americans are behind this. President Trump beating Joe Biden in five key swing states. He's storming ahead in five of six key swing states just 12 months before the 2024 presidential election, with the 45th president predicted to obtain more than 300 electoral votes or college votes, way above the necessary 270 to win. Trump, despite his multiple deep state indictments and attempts to inhibit his reelection run, is leading by 11 points in Nevada six in Georgia, five in Arizona, five in Michigan, and four in Pennsylvania. Biden leads in Wisconsin by just two points. Across all the six, Trump is averaging 48% to Biden's 44. The 45th president is also polling at unprecedented rates among ethnic minorities and young Americans. Voters under 30 
prefer Biden by just one percentage point. Biden's lead among Hispanics has dwindled to single digits, and almost one quarter of black voters, 22 percent, intend to vote for Trump, which is a level unseen in presidential politics for a Republican in modern times. Better still for the former president is almost twice as many voters are prioritizing the economy above social issues such as abortion or guns. Among those economic prioritizers, 60% support Trump, just 32% support Biden, and overall 59% trust Trump over Biden on the economy. Only 2% of Americans told pollsters the economy was excellent under the Biden government. A majority of voters are saying that Biden's policies have personally hurt them. Stand by while we take a break. Coming up, the story of David Brainerd.
you could be if you could shoot at me with those angry eyes. You and I will stop to realize. Madness flies us together in a false disguise. Can you see me through those angry eyes? Well, welcome back. It's time for a little missionary story. If you never heard of David Brainerd, you're going to hear about him today. Missionary to the Indians at age 24. Do you know how it's possible to live a very long life in a very few years? Um, perhaps you've heard it said this way. He lives long who lives well. Well, the young missionary to the Indians uh, of long ago, this David Brainerd proved this to be true. Uh, he had a short, heroic, useful life. In 1718, the little village of Haddam, Connecticut, was indeed a small village. But there in April of that year, a baby was born who grew up into the man and the missionary that all who know anything of missions today love to think about. When David Brainerd was only nine, his father died, and five years later, the death of his mother left him a lonely orphan, and for a while he became a farmer's boy and earned his living by his work out of doors. Then he went to live with a good minister who gave him a chance to study. Um, the young man was anxious to go to college, and so to Yale he went while still quite young, and he remained there three years. There were no theological seminaries then, uh, as there are today, uh, to prepare young men to be ministers. But they did study with older ministers and were made ready to preach in, in that way. Young Brainerd studied with different ministers until the year 1742. Although at that time he was only 24 years old, he was considered ready to preach and was sent out upon his chosen life, which is working as a missionary to the Indians. Well, at first, the intention was to send him to the tribes in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, but because of some trouble among the Indians there, uh, he was sent instead to the Stockbridge Indians in Massachusetts. He had a hard time in the, in the very beginning. You know, it was Solomon, the wise man, that says that it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Well, it was certainly given to this young guy to, to do this. There wasn't any comfortable home that was open to him. And he lived with a poor Scotchman whose, whose wife could hardly speak a word of English. He had nothing better than a heap of straw laid upon some boards, which was provided for lodging. And as for food, what do you think he ate? We know exactly what he ate, for he kept a journal. And in it he wrote, My diet is hasty pudding. What is hasty pudding? Hasty pudding is mush. Boiled corn, bread baked in the ashes, and sometimes a little meat and butter. He also said, I live in a log house without any floor. My work is exceedingly hard and difficult. I travel uh, on foot a mile and a half, the worst of ways, almost daily, and back again because I live so far from the Indians. He writes that the presence of God is what he wants, and he longs to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus. Well, the Indians, from the first seemed to be generally kind and ready to listen, but as new works tend to be, uh, in the beginning the work was slow. Young missionary's heart was troubled for these uh, Indians because the Dutch claimed their lands and threatened to drive them off. And the Dutch seemed to hate him because he tried to teach the Indians uh, the way of life. He tried to preach the gospel to them. At this time, there was just a single person 
uh, nearby with whom he could talk English. This person was a young Indian with 18 letters in his last name, which was far enough from being English. Fortunately, his first name was John. The exposure and hardships of those days brought on illness from which the missionary suffered all through his brief life. He tells in his journal of spending a day in labor to get something for his horse to eat after getting a horse, but it seems as if he had little use of it, for he was often without bread for days together because unable to find his horse in the woods to go after it. He was so weak that he needed something besides boiled corn but had to go or send 10 or 15 miles to get bread of any kind. If he got any considerable quantity at a time, it was often sour and moldy before he could eat it all. He didn't write complainingly of all this, but he did make a, a joyful entry one day, giving thanks to God for his great goodness. After he had been allowed to bestow in charitable uses to supply great needs of others, a sum of over 100 pounds New England money. It was truly to him uh, more blessed to give than to receive. He was thankful, he said, to be a steward to distribute what really belonged to God. Well, after two years working among the Stockbridge Indians, David went to New Jersey. Uh, his red brothers uh, parted from him sorrowfully. They hated to see him go the commissioners unexpectedly sent him to the Delaware Forks Indians. This meant that he must return to settle up affairs in Massachusetts and go back again to the new field. The long rides had to be taken on horseback. The nights were spent in the woods. He was be wrapped in a great coat and lying upon the ground. Uh, he had flattering offers of pulpits in large churches where he would have had the comforts of life, but he steadfastly refused to leave his beloved Indians. In the midst of um, difficulties and hardships, he gladly toiled on. Traveling about as he did, he was often in peril of his life among, along the dangerous ways. On one trip to visit the Susquehanna Indians, the missionary's horse hung a leg over the rocks of the rough way and fell under him. It was a narrow escape from death, but he was not hurt, though the poor horse's leg was broken, and being 30 miles from any house, he had to kill the suffering animal and go the rest of the way on foot. The last place of heroic service was in New Jersey, at a place called Cross Weeksum. Here he was gladly received and spent two busy and fruitful years preaching to the Indians, visiting them in their wigwams, comforting and helping them in every way, being their beloved friend and counselor at all times. At last, he became so weak that he couldn't go on. A church and school having been established, the way was made easier for another. Hoping to gain strength to return to his red brothers, David Brainerd went to New England for rest and was received gladly into the home of Reverend Jonathan Edwards. Here, his health failed very rapidly, but his brave spirit was so full of joy that his face shone as with the light of heaven. He said, My work is done. He died October 9, 1747, at the age of 29. He opened the way for others to serve his Indians, and his life has helped many, and has sent others into the field through all these years since the young hero was called and crowned. The story of his life influenced William Carey, Samuel Marsden, and Henry Martin to become missionaries. Through these, David Brainerd spoke to India, to New Zealand, and to Persia. He only worked out on the mission field for five years, and yet he continues to this day to be an influence on people that are looking at missions as a possible vocation. Also in this section, let's talk a little bit about the persecuted church. 
Christians have been urged to pray for the persecuted church, particularly these last or this last Sunday and this coming Sunday. Christians will congregate worldwide in solidarity with their brothers and sisters in Christ who face persecution and even death for their faith in observance of the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church has been organized by the World Evangelical Alliance for more than two decades, with many other faith-based organizations encouraging participation. According to Open Doors, a watchdog that monitors persecution in over 60 countries, over 360 million Christians live in countries where they experience some kind of hostility as a result of proclaiming the name of Jesus or living out their faith. In its annual World Watch List report, Open Doors reported that over 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith in the 2022 reporting period, 90% of which occurred in Nigeria alone. Many Christian advocacy organizations, such as Open Doors U.S. and the Voice of the Martyrs, have offered free resources, such as discussion questions and prayer guides to help churches or small groups host a gathering for the International Day of Prayer. Ryan Brown, CEO of Open Doors U.S., emphasized in an interview with the Christian Post the role that prayer plays in the organization's mission to combat the global persecution of Christ's followers. He said, regardless of the enormity of a problem, prayer reminds Christians of God's power. It allows us to align ourselves to the hearts of the Father, who, as much care and as much passion as we may have for serving the persecuted church, it pales in comparison to Christ's heart for his bride. Brown said the... International Day of Prayer is also an opportunity for Christians globally to uplift their persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ by providing their, uh, by, by proving that there are thousands, if not millions of people thinking about them. The new Open Doors US CEO highlighted concerns that the West is continuing to delve deeper into post-Christian culture as it can be easy for those not living under persecution to become consumed with the busyness of their daily lives. The Christians facing discrimination for their faith, Brown contended, serve as an example to Westerners of refusing to limit their faith despite the culture they inhabit. There have also been persistent trends in Christian persecution, according to Brown, citing the findings of his group's annual World Watch List as another reason for Christ followers to immerse themselves in prayer. According to a brief on the top of the Open Doors website, North Korea holds the top spot for Christian persecution. But Brown noted that countries like China have used intimidation and government power to also oppress people of faith. Brown said in other countries, such as Nigeria, Christians are often subjected to violence. Estimates, estimates released earlier this year uh, found that at least 5,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria in 2022, and at least 1,000 were killed within the first three months of 2023. Open Doors is offering resources for churches participating in the event to share with their congregations, including guides for planning a prayer meeting and sermon notes to help facilitate discussion. As a result, Brown hopes to see people consistently dedicate more time to thinking about their persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. The goal is not that this necessarily becomes a once-a-day, once-a-year activity, but that this becomes a springboard into something that impacts us on a regular basis. The resilience and unwavering trust in God displayed by our persecuted brothers and sisters serve as a testament to the enduring power of Christ in their lives. Coming up after this break, a devotional word. There's rumors of war. Don't you worry A new day 
dawn To catch the sun And the way we'll fly Good to be ready. You know, I am discovering that many people want, above all else, to live life to the full. But sometimes I'm also discovering the past prohibits our living and enjoying life to the utmost and in the present tense. Uh, a school teacher 
entered his room a few minutes early and noticed a mealworm laboriously crawling along the floor. It had somehow been injured. And the back part of the worm was dead and, and dried up, but still attached, living part, uh, living, uh, still attached to the living part by just a thin thread. So as the teacher studied this strange uh, sight of the poor worm pulling its dead half across the floor, a little girl ran in and noticed it there. And picking it up, she said, Oh, Oscar, when are you going to lose that dead part so you can really live? What a, what a marvelous question for all of us, don't you think? When are, when are you going to lose that dead part so you can really live? When are you going to let go of past pain so you can live fully? When are you going to drop the baggage of needless guilt so you can experience life? When are you going to let go of that past resentment so you can know peace? Have you been dragging something that is dead and gone around with you? Are you ready to lose that dead part so you can really live? Thank you for hanging out with me this hour. Next week, we'll be one week older and closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like to share an idea or a thought, or if you have any questions about On Call for God, you may send an email to me at jose at globalgrace.org. Or if you would like to send an old-fashioned letter, the address is On Call for God, P.O. Box 3015, Forney, Texas, 75126. See you next time. Be safe and be blessed. Thank you.